Welcome back, listeners. This is Lindsay, your host, talking about the 1843 revelation, or as LDS believers know it, Doctrine and Covenants section 132 that still exists in the scriptures today. Now we're going to travel back to the fateful day of July 12th, 1843. The same day, July 12th, 1843, the Warsaw Signal, an anti-Mormon publication, issues a statement talking about the arrest of Joseph Smith in June. They talk about some of the other politics happening in Nauvoo. And meanwhile, Joseph Smith is in the red brick store receiving or dictating a revelation from God. Now, in the upstairs of the red brick store, the downstairs was a store where they would sell dry goods. Joseph Smith was there with Hiram and William Clayton, his secretary. Hiram was his brother. And before that, Joseph had already received other revelations in the red brick store. This is where he organized the Relief Society. He revealed DNC section 127 that had to do with the ordinances of the dead. In February of 1843, he dictates DNC section 129, which talks about how to discern if a spirit is from God or the devil. And it would be on this fateful day, this Wednesday in July of 1843, that Joseph Smith would dictate a revelation on plural marriage. Now, there's a great website from Brian Hales um, on josephsmithpolygamy.org that I'm going to link to that goes into the entire history of this. I'm going to let William Clayton, Joseph Smith's secretary, bring us in and kind of explain what happens. Here's what William Clayton says, quote, On the morning of the 12th of July, 1843, Joseph and Hiram Smith came into the office in the upper story of the brick store on the bank of the Mississippi River, They were talking on the subject of plural marriage. Hiram said to Joseph, If you write the revelation on celestial marriage, I will take it and read it to Emma, and I believe I can convince her of its truth, and you will hereafter have peace. Joseph smiled and remarked, You do not know Emma as well as I do. Hiram repeated his opinion and further remarked, The doctrine is so plain, I can convince any reasonable man or woman of its truth, purity, and heavenly origin or some words to their effect. Joseph then said, Well, I will write the revelation and we will see. He then requested me to get paper and prepare to write. Hiram very urgently requested Joseph to write the revelation by means of the Urim and Thummim, but Joseph in reply said he did not need to, for he knew the revelation perfectly from beginning to end. Joseph and Hiram then sat down and Joseph commenced to dictate the revelation on celestial marriage, and I wrote it, sentence by sentence, as he dictated. After the whole was written, Joseph asked me to read it through slowly and carefully, which I did, and he pronounced it correct. He then remarked that there was much more that he could write on the same subject, but it was written for the sufficient for the present. Hiram then took the revelation to read to Emma. Joseph remained with me in the office until Hiram returned. When he came back, Joseph asked him how he had succeeded. Hiram replied that he had never received a more severe talking to in his life that Emma was very bitter and full of resentment and anger. Joseph quietly remarked, I told you, you did not know Emma as well as I did. Joseph then put the revelation in his pocket and they both left the office. End quote. This is an interesting exchange. Now, July 
1843, Joseph Smith has a lot going on. Let's back up a few months to May of 1843. Joseph Smith has already married around a dozen women. Hiram Smith is not really convinced of the doctrine of plurality. In fact, for a long time, he was in bitter opposition to it. It's in May of 1843, he gets converted to the cause and decides that he is going to uh, help convince Emma, who is struggling. Other people had known about it. Joseph had now given Emma her endowment. She had decided to accept the principle in May, which means she got to choose the two wives Joseph would be sealed to. And of course, he chooses, uh, Emma chooses the Partridge sisters who are living with her in the mansion house. What she doesn't know is the Partridge sisters are already married polygamously to Joseph Smith, but uh, they all do a pretend resealing in front of Emma. So she feels like she's in control. And of course, as we've talked about many times on the podcast, after their sealing, after Joseph spends the first night um, with Emily Partridge in her room, Emma Smith becomes their bitter, bitter enemy. He also, Emma's also there as he marries Sarah and Maria Lawrence. And of course, this makes Emma crazy with rage. So it must have been a very tumultuous two months because Hiram and Hiram Smith, William Clayton, and Joseph Smith are strategizing on ways to get Emma to accept this practice. In transcribing this, Hiram Smith was there as a witness, and William Clayton served as a scribe, that the revelation was according to the order of the priesthood, including the designs in Moses, Abraham, David, and Solomon having many wives and concubines. So to them, to to these men, it made sense. Of course, William Clayton had already been marrying uh, plurally and Hiram Smith had just been introduced into the practice. Joseph had designed the endowment as sort of a reward to the people who had agreed to engage in this practice. And Emma Smith was one of those. Emma Smith, of course, was very tormented by this, but she believed that um, if she could accept this practice, then she could get her endowments out. And to her that had a lot of very important promises with it, so it was important to her. Clayton would later write that he wrote the Revelation sentence by sentence as Joseph Smith had dictated. After Joseph Smith dictates this, um, and it's rejected by Emma, and it's said that Emma Smith, by some accounts, Emma Smith threw it in the fire. Um, By other accounts, it's perhaps Joseph Smith regretted it and asked it to be burned. We don't know, but we know that it was burned. But we do know that uh, Joseph Smith apparently discloses this revelation to several of his close associates. He also claims that he had received this doctrine years earlier. Let's talk about what the revelation says for a minute. One of the things that it says that becomes an important part of Mormon fundamentalists is what fundamentalists call the law of Sarah. It's... uh, the, doc, the 1843 revelation states that the first wife has to consent to marry another wife. And of course, as we talk about in Frontier Doctrine, this doesn't happen, especially during the Mormon Reformation. We have husbands showing up with second plural wives, with their first wives having no consent, no idea. Carolyn Pearson talks about this in her book, Happening to Her Grandmother, and her grandmother actually leaves her grandfather over this this idea, um, but it's explicit in DNC 132, this idea that the first wife has to consent. And of course, Mormon fundamentalists would play this out by laying, um, having the first wife place her hand over the 
the husband and second wife's hands on the altar as giving them, giving permission in the law of Sarah. The revelation also says, plural wives are, quote, are given unto him to multiply and replenish the earth according to my commandment and to fulfill the promise which was given by my father before the foundation of the world and for their exaltation in the eternal world, that they may bear the souls of men, end quote. So one of the main justifications for polygamy was to raise seed. Now, this brings up an interesting question, which we've talked about before. Joseph Smith apparently does not have any seed from polygamous marriages. Now, there are many theories behind this. That might be some of his uh, surviving uh, seed didn't survive. Some of the DNA testing has not been done. But a lot of it has now, and Joseph does not have progeny, according to the DNA. Now, there are certainly women who believed that their children were the, you know, actual biological children of Joseph Smith, which indicates that Joseph Smith had sexual relations with them. Many women testified that they had sexual relations with them. And um, Joseph, Joseph's uh, personal secretary, William Clayton's diaries account for his presence sleeping with these these women at certain at certain nights. So that's not really in question. But there is this idea that maybe Joseph wasn't very fertile to begin with. I mean, a lot of his children with Emma did not survive, which, and this is me completely speculating, completely speculating, but there is this sort of contradiction between the stated purpose of plural marriage, which is to raise up seed unto God, and the outcome, what Joseph Smith actually ends up with. And um, a lot of historians, a lot of uh, Mormon believers would say that Joseph's job was to bring the practice into play. And then, of course, others would take on this idea of raising seed. And of course, they do. And polygamy sort of takes off. And and a lot of children are born from plural unions. But I wonder now, just being an adult, uh, having been married, having studied this topic and spoken to an, you know, an unknown amount of plural families, that perhaps Joseph was giving Emma a reason to understand why he didn't just have to be sealed to someone, but why he had to have sex with them. Because we know after he gets sealed to the Partridge sisters, he spends the night with them and Emma knows about this. And the next morning she's tormented and becomes their bitter enemy and spends a lot of time policing their interactions with him. To me, this is this line is more about a justification of why sex is actually required in plural unions, um, because maybe you know Emma Smith, I can see her saying, "But why? Why not just get sealed to them? You know, get sealed to them with a law of adoption or create these heavenly sealings? Why does it have to be on earth too? Why can't it just be for eternity only?" And Joseph saying, well, this is why, because we have to raise up seed. Let me tell you how the Joseph Smith Papers Project, which is an amazing project, tells this story. They say, quote, after Joseph Smith had dictated the revelation, Hiram took it to Emma and, according to Clayton, received a, quote, severe talking to because she was very bitter and full of resentment and anger about plural marriage. Hiram then brought the revelation back to Joseph Smith. Clayton stated that it was read to several of the authorities during the day, including Newell K. Whitney, who had asked that a copy be made. Joseph Smith agreed, and Joseph Kingsbury, a clerk in Joseph Smith's red brick store, carefully copied, quote, carefully copied the revelation the next day. 
After, after the copy was made, according to Clayton, Joseph Smith permitted Emma Smith to destroy the original copy. Clayton, however, declared in 1874 that the copy Kingsbury made was, quote, a true and correct copy of the original in every respect, and that it had been carefully preserved by Whitney through the years. Kingsbury corroborated Clayton's account of the destruction of the original copy and his own creation of the duplicate copy for Whitney, end quote. This is one of the controversies with the Joseph Smith fought polygamy thing, that we don't have the revelation in any witness's hand. It's in Joseph Kingsbury's hand, and where did he come from, and why is it written there? Well, this is why, and here we have, you know, the Joseph Smith Papers Project laying it out for you, why Joseph Kingsbury has it. It's a very controversial revelation. It's really kept quiet for about eight years. Brian Hills on his site, Joseph Smith Polygamy, says that at this time in 1843, there are about 8,000 residents of Nauvoo and about only about 200 people knew and were in on the secret of plural marriage. So eight years, this revelation is kept secret. And of course, Joseph and Emma Smith have a very private, very contentious battle during this time. I would say that this is probably at least according to the historical record, one of the hardest summers of Emma Smith's life, which is saying a lot because Emma Smith has been through a lot. Let's talk about a little bit more about how this section affects Emma Smith because she really is laid on the altar of this doctrine. In the Revelation, around 15 of the 66 verses are directed at her specifically. And since, you know, Hiram Smith asked Joseph, to write this to convince her, it makes sense that that it would be. In the article titled Nauvoo Roots of Nauvoo Polygamy, 1841-1846, a preliminary demographic report, historian George D. Smith notes, quote, Any discussion of resistance to polygamy is incomplete if it does not mention Emma Smith's reluctance to accept co-wives. Joseph's plural marriage revelation went so far as to threaten her with destruction if she did not comply. She reportedly, she responded by reportedly throwing the written revelation into the fire. After Joseph Smith died, she consistently denied that her husband had ever practiced polygamy. According to Lucy Meserve Smith, Emma, quote, bore testimony to me that Mormonism was true as it came forth from the servant of the Lord, Joseph Smith, but said she but said she the twelve had made bogus of it. She said they were living with their plural wives and raising children, and Joseph never taught any such doctrine. End quote. Eventually, Emma Smith allowed the majority of Mormons under the leadership of Brigham Young to migrate west without her. She later became a member of the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headed by her son, Joseph Smith III. End quote. Okay. Now, I talked about the importance of dates, and dates are important here if you're looking to see how confusing of a time, how tumultuous of a time this was. So the revelation comes in July of 1843. Here is what the book Mormon Enigma says of Emma two months prior. We're going to back up again and go to May where both her and Hiram aren't quite convinced of the doctrine. On page 140, it says, quote, Until Emma could be obedient to Joseph Smith and give him plural wives, she could not participate in the endowment ceremonies. Yet he taught her that the endowment was essential for exaltation, as opposed to salvation, which Joseph taught was available to all through the atonement of Christ. Joseph wanted Emma to serve as the example, the elect lady, the disseminator of the endowment blessing to other women. 
Thus, her rejection of plural marriage would have blocked her admittance into the endowment council because she had not obeyed her husband and therefore prevented other women from entering as well, end quote. Now, I want to talk about that for a minute because this idea of women obeying their husbands really takes shape from this idea of plural marriage. Of course, it's sort of this sexist idea that comes from centuries of sexist policy and antiquated ideas about women and men. And it shows up in in certainly other faith traditions. But we really see it take shape in canonized form in Mormonism with plural marriage. DNC 132 says you have to obey your husband. This makes it into a temple covenant where women are promising to become priests unto their husbands. This idea that you have to obey your husbands is completely rooted in polygamy because there was never really a question about women obeying their husbands within the Mormon context until polygamy is introduced. And then, then women start having a problem with their husband's choices here. And really, I mean, if, if you look at this, Mormonism provided a really equitable platform for women up until this point. Till this point, now they have to obey their husbands or else receive condemnation. And no one feels this more acutely than Emma Smith because she is said to be this elect lady. Now her responsibility is higher. Her husband is asking her to do something that other women are able to do, but she can't do it, which means she has a greater loss of blessings than other women. So you can be saved through Christ, but not Emma Smith. Not if she doesn't obey Joseph Smith. Back to Mormon Enigma, page 143. Quote, For two months, from March to May, Joseph appears to have talked with Emma about plural marriage. He apparently used their rights together to teach her the necessity of the endowment and sealing. There is no evidence that she ever opposed him on any doctrine but plural marriage. Convinced that it was necessary for her salvation and essential to their continued relationship, she may have decided to compromise with Joseph Smith. In May of 1843, she finally agreed to give Joseph other wives if she could choose them. Any of Joseph's other wives, who by now numbered at least 16, would have been more comfortable if they had had Emma's approval. Emma chose the two sets of sisters then living in her house, Emily and Eliza Partridge, and Sarah and Maria Lawrence. Joseph had finally converted Emma to plural marriage, but not so fully that he dared tell her he had married the Partridge sisters two months earlier. Emma's capitulation, however, was only momentary. Emily wrote that, quote, Emma seemed to feel well until the ceremony was over, when almost before she could draw a second breath, she turned and was more bitter in her feelings than ever before, if possible. And before the day was over, she turned around or repented what she had done and kept Joseph up till very late in the night talking to him. Emma began to talk as firmly and urgently to Joseph about abandoning plural marriage as he had done, as he had formally talked to her about accepting it. The book goes on to say, quote, Joseph's choice of women as plural wives gradually put a wedge between Emma and her friends as long as she remained either ignorant of the practice or opposed to it. By late summer of 1843, most of Emma's friends had either married Joseph or had given their daughter to him. Her sister-in-law, Agnes Coolbrith, was married to Joseph. Another sister-in-law, Mary Fielding, had consented to the marriage of her husband Hiram Smith and her sister Mercy. At least five women in her own household were Joseph's plural wives. Whether 
Emma knew about them or not, the women would have been sympathetic to Emma while she opposed plural marriage. As a result, she became isolated from her friends and associates, and through the next four years, the isolation would become more and more acute, end quote. I don't think enough reverence is given to this period in Emma's life by hardly anyone. We have a lot of outrage when we think about this. We have a lot of um, sympathy and it sort of becomes a weapon for our own anger at the church. But I'm wondering if for a moment listeners can dedicate just a minute purely, purely and unselfishly to the feelings of Emma Smith. Not out of rage, not out of any other ulterior motive. And even those who are believers, my fundamentalist friends who practice and live the plurality of wives, even if you believe in this doctrine, I want you to understand what was sacrificed for it. Here we have a woman who had been through so much. And, you know, we talk about this. You can uh, look on yearpolygamy.com. We have a two part prelude talking about the biography of Emma Smith. We start the series with her. Emma Smith elopes with this man. She trusts this man. She helps build this movement with this man. She has children who pass away with this man. She sees him tarred and feathered and persecuted. She has her house broken into by mobs, her children threatened, rumors said about her in this time period. And here now, her, all of her friends, all of her close associates, people she trusts, her own family members are in on this secret that she so despises that it torments her. And while they're sympathetic, they're still participating in this knife in her back. And whether you agree with Emma's position or not, you can certainly empathize with the pain she must have felt and the confusion and the loneliness. You know, we interviewed Brielle Decker, who was uh, a wife of, a plural wife to Warren Jeffs. And the main theme for me, out of all the atrocities that Brielle experiences, is the aching loneliness that this doctrine sometimes imposes on women. And if certainly there is a loneliness and a fracturing of men, it's sort of, um, when you, when you share your heart with others, it's not impossible. It can be done. And there is certainly an increase in love in these scenarios. But there are certain barriers and boundaries that have to be put in place in your own heart. And Emma is not choosing these. They are being forced upon her in such an isolating and confusing way. I just want us to give some reverence to that. Back to um, Mormon Enigma, quote, On the morning of July 12, 1843, two days after Emma's birthday, Joseph and Hiram enter the office in the brick store talking about plural marriage. William Clayton wrote that Hiram said, quote, If you will write the revelation on celestial marriage, I will take it to you and read it to Emma, and I believe I will convince you of its truth. And this is where we have Joseph say, You don't know Emma as well as I do. Although the modern Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints traces the revelation back to Kirtland in 1830-1831, it is clear that the 15 verses directed to Emma Smith dealt with the Nauvoo period and particularly Joseph's immediate problem with Emma. One modern-day scholar states, quote, The burden of the revelation was to inform Emma that although she had been eternally married to her husband, 
The new and everlasting covenant of marriage must be sealed upon them with the Holy Spirit of promise by him who is anointed, unto whom I have appointed the power and the keys of the priesthood. In other words, only by receiving the fullness of the priesthood could Emma Smith have claim on her husband in the eternities. Contrary to the tone of the 1830 elect lady revelation, the new revelation was threatening and strident. Emma could either accept more wives willingly, or she could have them forced upon her. But the message of the revelation seemed clear. Whatever discomfort might result, Emma's place was at Joseph's side. After the revelation was burned in the fire, the incident raised several questions. Did Joseph burn the plural marriage revelation, or did Emma? Did Emma deny that she put a paper in the fire at all, or was she saying that she did not believe that the paper she burned contained an authentic revelation for the Lord? No matter what its origin, she opposed the doctrine. She was not without power in the struggle with Joseph over it. Four days after her return from St. Louis, Emma exerted her strongest leverage. She threatened divorce. In the most serious crisis of their marriage, Joseph backed down. He told Emma that he would give up his wife's, but he confided to William, Cl- William Clayton that he did not intend to keep his word, end quote. And you can read that on in the pages of 152 to 158 in Mormon Enigma, which I will link. If you haven't bought that book, out of respect for Emma Smith, you should buy that book and read it. I'm going to talk about how Newell Bringhurst... Um, explains this. Now, I'm going to be reading a lot from from these books today, and I hope you'll go buy these. If you haven't bought the Persistence of Polygamy series, you really need to. If this topic interests you, buy series, um, buy the series volumes one, two, and three. I'm reading, I'm going back to volume one, where historian Newell Bringhurst talks about this revelation. He says, quote, not in dispute is the immediate situation prompting Joseph Smith to bring forth the revelation in July of 1843, specifically severe marital marital difficulties with his wife, Emma, as a result of her husband's involvement with polygamy. He was urged by older brother Hiram, who suggested that Emma would be convinced of the truthfulness of it. The revelation was, in the opinion of Newell and Avery, threatening and strident in addressing and instructing Emma. It stated, Quote, let my handmaid Emma Smith receive all those wives that have been given unto my servant Joseph and who are virtuous and pure before me, going on to warn her that if she failed to comply, Joseph would receive from the Lord an hundredfold in the world of wives. So basically, you know, Emma Smith could either accept this or Joseph would get them anyway, a hundredfold. Back to Bringhurst, he said, quote, according to Newell and Avery, quoting a statement made by William Clayton many years later, Emma told Joseph that, he, that if he continued to indulge himself, she would too, that is to involve herself with other men. Whereas, according to Donnell Bachman's reference to William Clayton's 1843 journal, Emma, in rejecting the principle of plural marriage, totally threatened to divorce her husband if he did not give it up. Also pertaining to Emma's situation were verses 64 and 65, while not addressing her directly, alluded to her in discussing, quote, the position of the first wife. Specifically, the verses stated, quote, if any man have a wife and he teaches under her the law of my priesthood as pertaining to these things, then she shall believe and minister unto him or she shall be destroyed, saith the Lord your God. It then addresses the condition of the husband whose wives refused to accept the additional wives. Quote, it shall be lawful in me if she receive not this law for him to receive all things whatsoever I, the Lord, his God, will give unto him. Specifically, this exempted a man from the so-called law of Sarah, which required a husband to ask his wife for permission to take another wife. 
If the first withheld her consent, the revelation authorized the husband to proceed without it. Earlier in the revelation, Emma was told to forgive my servant Joseph his trespasses, and then pointing to her willful behavior, most especially her resistance to polygamy, it stated, quote, Then shall she be forgiven her trespasses, wherein she has trespassed against me. The revelation also referenced Emma, albeit in a more oblique manner, in a verse immediately following it its admonishment of her. Specifically, it stated, quote, And again, I say, let not my servant Joseph put his property out of his hands, lest an enemy come and destroy him. This portion of the revelation suggests that Emma pressured Joseph to transfer deeds to some of his property. According to Newell and Avery, Joseph knew that open disclosure of plural marriage would endanger his life. Emma may have tried to punctuate that eventuality in Joseph's mind, by insisting on financial security for her and her children. Okay, so Joseph's tactic to convince Emma was to threaten her with destruction, uh, to basically tell her that if she didn't do it, it was going to happen anyway, and that she needed to forgive Joseph Smith because she too was a sinner and needed to be forgiven. I'm sure as some of my polygamous friends know, there, there are other probably better ways to convince your wife of things, but maybe not. Maybe, maybe plural marriage, some women need the threat, the penalty of being destroyed over their head. To me, this is where the question of consent comes in. Um, many women consent to it, but when you're being threatened with destruction, I don't know that that counts as consent. The revelation also addresses adultery. It outlines the practice of plural marriage, talks about men raising up seed without cheating on their wife. And Richard Bushman has an interesting take in this. He actually says that what this revelation does is put the family at the center of Mormon theology. And I agree with that. This this really becomes where family becomes the focus of of the church. And when I say that, you know, the church is influenced by polygamy and everything has to do with polygamy, this is what I'm talking about. We became such a family-centric church because of this revelation. This is really the doctrinal theology. And as the church has to move away, as the LDS church has to move away from plural marriage, they have to keep this revelation. And so they, they kind of reinterpret it to just have to do with the nuclear family. Our entire focus, obsession, some will call it the cold of family in Mormonism, is really fertilized by the doctrine of plural marriage. There's, there's just no getting around it. Rich, Richard Bushman actually has an interesting interpretation that Newell Bringhurst quotes in um, The Persistence of Polygamy. This is what he says. The revelation, in fact, culminated the emergence of a family theology and the characterization of Richard L. Bushman, quote, more than any previous revelation, this one put the family first. Indeed, the family was the one institution sure to survive death and destined to be the fundamental governing unit in the hereafter. Within this family structure, such married men and women would retain the capacity to bear offspring. Through their capacity to enlarge their dominion, they would be assured a continuation of their seeds forever and ever. In other words, they kept bearing children. This capacity to enlarge made them, in effect, gods with procreation, lifted to the highest level of human and divine endeavor. Now, of course, this goes back to what Sheldon Kent said. This is a Swedenborg idea, the idea that in heaven you're still going to have sex. And, of course, Joseph interprets this to mean you're going to keep having sex and having children. Bushman 
who asserts, quote, before the marriage revelation, women were in the shadows in Joseph's theology, implied but rarely recognized. Now they move to the center. Bushman also says, quote, that the revelation did not overturn the family order. If anything, women were more entrenched in the roles of mother and wife. But this did give husbands the upper hand. So Richard Bushman says that this moves women to the center of Mormon theology. And I actually disagree with that. I, I actually strongly disagree with this. I think what this does is um, make women tools for men to exalt themselves. I think that this doctrine has caused more heartache in Mormon families than than probably any other scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just speculating. Maybe I don't know my scriptures well. But I do know it's broken the heart of just about every Mormon woman at some time in her life. Um, in Newell Brinkhurst's essay, he also talks about some other implications of this revelation. Um, Margaret and Paul Toscano, Mike Quinn, uh, Maxine Hanks, they have talked about how this revelation um, ties in with women in the priesthood. Margaret and Paul Toscano specifically assert that this revelation basically grants priesthood to men and women jointly. And of course, this is all involved in the endowment ceremony. So when Joseph Smith says that he knew the revelation by heart, I think that that's probably true. These ideas have been kicking around. The endowment had been formed around this. And Joseph is just really reiterating the endowment um, promises that he designed with penalties uh, for his wife, Emma. Let's talk about Joseph Kingsbury for just a minute. Now, Kingsbury's revelation is the one that we have. It's the one that's published in the Desert News. He was in on the idea of plural marriage. I'm going to link to Joseph Smith Papers Project on this, where you can see the LDS Church historian stance on this doctrine. It basically, in my opinion, squares with mine without, of course, my editorializing. It's definitely worth looking into, especially if you're doubtful of my assertions. I would encourage you to read that and also Mormon Enigma and Persistence of Polygamy with as companion guides to uh, the Doctrine and Covenants. And in fact, Joseph Smith Papers Project is fantastic for giving really good headers for all the context of the scriptures that are written. And what I love about their project is their footnotes. The footnotes to me are the most delicious. Now, I've been reading a lot on Fair Mormon to see, you know, just to make sure in fairness that I'm representing these interpretations correctly, which I believe that I am, um, but only you can decide that. One of Fair's arguments is that this revelation is really just Joseph continuing the restoration of all things. Here's what Fair Mormon says on the doctrine. They say, quote, Polygamy was not permitted only for the purpose of procreation. Joseph established the practice of plural marriage as part of the restoration of all things and introduced it to a number of others within the church. This alone may have been the purpose of Joseph's initiation of the practice. The establishment of the practice ultimately did have the effect of raising up seed, just not through Joseph Smith, end quote. So what they're saying is the reason why Joseph didn't have kids from this is because his job was really to establish the doctrine and to restore it back. As a side note, DNC 132 is not the first plural marriage revelation. Of course, we have the W.W. Phelps revelation that's written secondhand years later about the Lamanite doctrine, which we talked about from 1831. And then we have the unofficial never canonized revelation of Newell K. Whitney. Prior to marrying Newell K. Whitney's 17-year-old daughter, Sarah Ann Whitney, Joseph Smith receives and records a, a revelation about this doctrine. 
which still remains in church archives. It was recorded in the Revelation book of the time, but it was never canonized in the DNC. And in, in this revelation, the Lord reveals plural marriage and a ceremony, which later becomes altered and part of the sealing ceremony in the temple. So I just want to point that out to, to show that this isn't the only sort of revelation Joseph Smith is ha- having. I'm going to read part of that to you. Verily, thus saith the Lord unto my servant, Newell K. Whitney, a revelation to Newell K. Whitney, July 27th, 1842, and Joseph Smith, Elizabeth Ann Whitney, and Sarah Ann Whitney. Okay, so this is like basically exactly a year before the 1843 revelation. This is what it says, quote, Verily, thus saith the Lord unto my servant, Newell K. Whitney, the thing that my servant Joseph Smith has made known unto you and your family, which is his plural marriage to their daughter, and which you have agreed upon is right in mine eyes and shall be rewarded upon your head in honor and immortality and eternal life to all your house, both old and young, because of the lineage of my priesthood, saith the Lord, it shall be upon you and upon your children after you for generation to generation by virtue of the holy promise which I now make unto you, saith the Lord. These are the words which you shall pronounce upon my servant Joseph and your daughter Sarah Ann Whitney. They shall take each other by the hand, and you shall say, You both mutually agree, calling them by name, to be each other's companions, so long as you both shall live, preserving yourselves for each other and from all others, and also throughout all eternity, reserving only those rights which have been given to my servant Joseph by revelation and commandment and by legal authority in times past. If you both agree to covenant and do this, then I give you, Sarah Ann Whitney, my daughter, to Joseph Smith, to be his wife, to, to observe all the rights between you that belong to that condition. I do that in my own name and in the name of my wife, your mother, and in the name of the holy progenitors, by the right of the birth, which is of the priesthood, vested in my revelation and commandment and promise of the living. God obtained by the holy Melchizedek, Jethro, and others of the Holy Fathers, commanding in the name of the Lord all those powers to concentrate in you and through to your posterity forever. All these things I do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and through this order he may be glorified, and that though the power of the anointing David may reign king over Israel, which shall hereafter be revealed, let immortality and eternal life henceforth be sealed upon your heads forever and ever. Amen. End quote. Now, the source on this is the original manuscript of the Kirtland Revelation book that I believe is in the church historical department. And Todd Compton also talks about this in Sacred Loneliness on page 348. Okay, so uh, we talked a lot about the context of the, the Revelation. So let's do a shorter like TLDR version of the timeline of events. So the Revelation is given to Joseph Smith through God dictated to William Clayton in handwritten manuscripts on July 12th, 1843, in the Red Brick Store, right after it's given to Joseph's closest uh, friends and associates. A month after it's dictated, Hiram Smith reads it to the 13-member High Council of Nauvoo. After he reads it, of the 13, three of the men out, you know, rejected outright, and those men were William Marks, Austin A. Cowles, and one of his counselors, Leonard uh, Sobey. The 10 men that approved of the revelation were George W. Harris, William Huntington, Samuel Bent, Dunbar Wilson, Levi Jackman, Aaron Johnson, Thomas Grover, David Fulmer, Phineas Richards, and James Allred. This, of course, as we know, goes on to create enormous problems for the church. 
William Law, who is a wealthy Canadian convert and had been a counselor in Joseph Smith's first presidency, is incensed when he hears about this. He and his brothers declare Joseph Smith to be a fallen prophet. His outrage makes sense, as we've talked about in episode 10 of this series. And again, this is me shaming you. But if you haven't listened to episode 10, go back and listen to episode 10. You need to hear it. Let's just do a a review of why William Law might be upset by this. Remember, after the Conquernites, you know, are persecuted for practicing plural marriage, the persecution starts being directed in the Mormons' direction, and it becomes a constant thorn in Joseph Smith's side, as well as those of his associates. It actually affects their missionary effort. So Joseph had sent out 380 men around the country to go on this public relations um, mission to deny polygamy. 380 volunteer elders go on missions to spread affidavits and certificates throughout the nation. And you can read these in Dean see Jesse's, uh, the papers of Joseph Smith. Now remember, these men like leave their families and homes and travel for miles at the cost of their own pockets to deny that Joseph Smith is not a polygamist. Okay, so this is happening before the 1843 revelation. 380 men go out, spend months away from their family to testify and promise to people under sworn affidavits that Joseph is not a polygamist. A year before the 1843 revelation, Joseph printed in the Times and Seasons this entire sermon about not coveting other men's wives. And remember, by this point, he's, he's writing this sermon about not coveting other men's wives. And Joseph had already married at least two married women. He had many plural wives, but two were already married to living men that these women lived with. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Rollins, who was the wife of Adam Leitner, and Zina Diantha Huntington, who was the wife of Henry B. Jacobs. And of course, we already had, by this point, Orson Pratt had attempted suicide and left the note over Joseph Smith's association with Sarah Pratt. So you can see why William Law might be incensed by this. Of course, in September and October of 1842, just like, what, 10 months before, you know, DNC 132 is dictated, Joseph prints and reprints in the Times and Seasons this whole treatise condemning polygamy. Here's, I'm just going to give you a quote of the second one printed. The first one is a little bit abbreviated. And then um, in October, when he reprints it, this is what it says, quote, All legal contracts of marriage made before a person is baptized into the church should be held sacred and fulfilled. Inasmuch as the Church of Christ has been reproached with the crime of fornication and polygamy, we declare that we believe that one man should have one wife and one woman but one husband in case of death when either is at liberty to marry again. It is not right to persuade a woman to be baptized contrary to the will of her husband. Neither is it lawful to influence her to leave her husband. All children are bound by law to obey their parents and to influence them to embrace any religious faith or be baptized or leave their parents without their consent is unlawfulness. And parents and masters who exercise control over their wives and children and servants and prevent them from embracing the truth will have to answer for that sin. End quote. And of course, in the publication, it also included affidavits signed by 12 men, 19 women that states in part, quote, we know of no other rule or system of marriage than the one published in the Book of Doctrine and Covenants. And of course, that reiterates the same wording that's in the Articles of Marriage, which is what they're talking about. 
This is a year before the doctrine, so you can see why people, upon hearing about the revelation, say, wait a minute, this isn't right. Some of the people that actually signed that document were Apostle John Taylor, who would go on to be the polygamous hero president of the church, and Wilford Woodruff, same. He would go on to be the same. Um, They had already been taught the doctrine of polygamy. Another signer was Bishop Newell K. Whitney, who, you know, performed the plural marriage on the previous July for his own daughter to Joseph Smith. That's revelation that I just read to you. Um, Elizabeth Ann Whitney, who was a witness to the plural ceremony of her daughter. Sarah M. Cleveland, who had married Joseph Smith in 1842. And Eliza R. Snow, who had also married him in 1842. So they signed this document saying, we don't know of any other marriage system except for the one where it says one man and one wife. In the spring of 1843, Joseph would marry more women than probably any other period prior to that, including 14-year-old Helen Mark Kimball. And here we have Joseph Smith demanding temple workers stop gossiping about plural marriage and his association with it. According to official church history, Joseph Smith told them, quote, There is a great noise in the city, and many are saying that there cannot be so much smoke without some fire. Well, be it so. If the stories about Joe Smith are true, then the stories of John C. Bennett are true about the ladies of Nauvoo. And he says that the Ladies Relief Society are all organized of those who are to be the wives of Joe Smith. Ladies, you know whether this is true or not. It is no use living among hogs without a snout. This biting and devouring each other, I cannot endure. Away with it. For God's sake, stop it. End quote. Now, of course, we know that plenty of the women in the Relief Society knew this was true because they were sealed to Joseph Smith. Um, Emma was just discovering this. She had already had the stare incident, the famous stare incident of questionable narrative consistency with Eliza R. Snow. Hiram Smith, <laughs> Hiram Smith had assured a citywide congregation a few months before that the devil, only the devil, would write a revelation saying that polygamy was approved. Um, And then two months later, he's telling Joseph Smith to write it in the red brick store. You know, in spring of 1843, Joseph tells an entire congregation of Mormons that you either accuse me directly of the sin or keep quiet. And this is only a handful of of the info described why William Law and other men might be upset. They see this as duplicity. The members who are involved in this see this as the holy order. And this really, really sets the pattern in Mormonism of a higher law, of sacred and secret, of saying one thing to the public and another thing to, to you know, privately. And we see this tradition throughout Mormonism. It's one of the enduring legacies of plural marriage in Mormonism. It makes its way th- across all the Mormon movements in how the leadership justifies what they tell the general leadership, what they do privately, this milk before meat doctrine. And William Law doesn't see it that way. If the gospel is for all, it's for all. It's not duplicitous. And what Joseph is doing is not sacred. It's secret. And to him, it's lies. So, of course, they go on and they... um along with his wife, Jane Law, and Austin Cowles. They write up some affidavits. The Nauvoo Expositor is started. They, they publish this. Of course, parts of the revelation make it into the Warsaw Message, the non-Mormon newspaper in the neighboring town of Warsaw, Illinois. Includes this, this poem that makes it into the Warsaw Signal, into this newspaper. 
And this this poem is called Buckeye's uh, Lamentation for Want of More Wives. Okay, and, and some of the stanzas are related directly to the revelation. Here's part of the poem. Quote, I once thought I had knowledge great, but now I find tis small. I once thought I had religion too, but now I'd now I find I've none at all. For I have but one lone wife and can obtain no more. And the doctrine is I can't be saved unless I've half a score. A tenfold glory, that's the prize. Without it, you're undone. But with it, you will shine as bright as the bright shining sun. There you might shine like mighty gods, creating worlds so fair. At least a world for every wife that you take with you there. End quote. Now, Buckeye's Lamentation was published anonymously, according to Newell K. Whitney, but it appears to have been Francis Higby, who had joined in 1844 with William Law, and then, you know, um, had joined William Law in opposing this doctrine. And what's interesting about this is we see the beginning of the Adam-God doctrine this early. Some people attribute it specifically to Brigham Young. But here we have Francis Higby saying one wife equals one planet. So we know that that justification was certainly floating around at the time. So, you know, the Nauvoo Expositors destroyed. We've covered all this history before. It causes lots of conflict. This ultimately leads to the death of Joseph Smith in Carthage. All of this is a reaction to polygamy. All of this is because of this revelation. I want you to imagine what the church would have been like without this revelation. I'm going to say something bold that um, I'm sure I can be challenged on. I would say that without this revelation, Mormonism would have just fizzled away as another movement. It would have become a mainstream Christian movement. It would still be around today, but it would not be as cohesive as it is now. Some would say that that testifies to the truthfulness of the doctrine. That Mormon plurality led Brigham Young to take the entire group of saints, well, not the entire, but a large portion of the group of saints across the West. And I I just don't know. I don't know if you could say it's inspired. I know it certainly caused a lot of heartache. But that interpretation is up to you, not to me. Eight years, no one else knows about it except for, you know, it's rumored. It's just another rumor thrown out there as far as a general Mormon is concerned. It's just another rumor about your prophet. It's another reason why you're being persecuted. It's just another way that outsiders don't understand you. And of course, they don't know what's really going on. And then, of course, it's 1852. The saints are now in Utah. They've already been living it across the plains. It's getting out to more and more people as you're living in these small, you know, camps coming across the West. It's kind of hard to hide your plural babies coming from your polygamous husbands. And it starts to get out. Brigham Young is feeling a lot more emboldened, inspired by this. He's now outside of the government's control, or so he thinks, or at least he would be for about five years. So he announces this practice. It's 1852. He allows it to be printed in the Desert News. This basically announces the revelation as official Mormon doctrine, and it publicly acknowledges the practice. Uh, Orson Pratt, of course, takes on the, you know, the first PR campaign. So after sending 380 men out to deny the practice, now Orson Pratt is going to Washington, D.C. He publishes the pamphlet called The Seer, 
where he explains this doctrine. And they print it in the Millennial Star, which is the British arm of uh, Mormon newspaper publishing. And, you know, tons and tons and tons of saints in Britain apostatize because they're like, oh, no, the rumors are true. Brigham Young also delivers his famous speech in the 1852 sermon at a conference in August of 1852, declaring that, quote, no man could be exalted in heaven without the application of the principles involved. And this sermon is published in the Desert News Extra on September 14th, 1852, titled The Principles and Doctrines of Having Many Wives and Concubines, A Revelation to Joseph Smith, Jr., July 12th, 1843. Here's what the Joseph Smith Papers Project says about this ser- or this publication in the Desert News quote. Using the Kingsbury copy as a source text, the revelation was first published in an extra to the Desert News on the 14th of September, 1852 following the public announcement of plural marriage. The revelation text was included in a report of the proceedings of the Special Conference of the Elders held August 28th through 29th, 1852, at which Orson Pratt acknowledged on behalf of the church the principles of plurality of wives and the active practice of plural marriage by church members. Brigham Young had Thomas Bullock read the text of the revelation to those in attendance, and Bullock apparently used Kingsbury's version to do so. End quote. So, of course, Orson Pratt, who was once suicidal about the doctrine, now is one of the most converted members to the practice. Campaigns in Washington, D.C. with his seer to um, convince everyone of the truthfulness. But he wasn't the only one in this PR campaign. Brigham Young dispatches John Taylor, who goes to New York City, where he publishes a periodical called The Mormon from February 1855 to September 1857. Artist Partial in her blog, Keep a Pitchin' In, um, has excerpts from the Mormon. It's hard to find. It's only on microfilm as far as I'm aware. Brigham Young also dispatches Apostle George Hugh Cannon to San Francisco, where he published the Western Standard. And Erastus Snow was sent to the Midwest, where he publishes the St. Louis Luminary. Now they're going to shout it from the rooftops. They had been hiding it for so long, but no longer... It's public, and now they're convinced that they're going to sell the world on it. Perhaps with Emma out of the way, there was this optimism that people would accept it somehow more readily. According to Newell Bringhurst, Brigham Young would preach many times that polygamy was essential for salvation, declaring, quote, that only men who had become God, who become gods, even the sons of gods, are those who enter into polygamy, end quote. Now, the the actual revelation isn't going to make it into scripture until much later. And so this is where a lot of fundamentalists have a lot of issues with the LDS church or what they so lovingly tease me as I'm a member of the corporate church. They call they call it the corporate church. The revelation would eventually make it into the doctrine and covenants in 1876, where it was canonized as section 132. In 1878, they would place it in the Pearl of Great Price, and Newell Brinkhorst explains, quote, it was placed under the heading Revelation on the Eternity of Marriage Covenant, including the plurality of wives. The revelation continued to be placed in four subsequent editions of the Pearl of Great Price over the following 12 years from 1879 to 1891, end quote. Did you know that? Did you know that this revelation was in the Pearl of Great Price for 12 years? The frontier men would have understood this to be 
an everlasting covenant, which means it's not just a promise you make with your partner forever, but it's something that will never leave the earth. And of course, certainly other other church leaders are going to have different interpretations as the outside politics change. But the way that they understood it then was that this was to never leave the earth. After all, Joseph Smith had once again restored it. While he might have taken it off the earth for the Nephites, it was now again restored, never to be taken away. In 1879, Wilford Woodruff wrote in his journal, quote, God, our Heavenly Father, knowing that this was the only law ordained by the gods of eternity that would exalt mortal beings, commanded Joseph Smith, the prophet, and the Latter-day Saints to obey this law, or you shall be damned, end quote. Now, this makes sense, right? You're going to believe it's an eternal doctrine if you have to give up so much for it. Why else would you be doing it? William Clayton wrote in his journal, quote, From him, Joseph Smith, I learned that the doctrine of plural and celestial marriage is the most holy and important doctrine ever revealed to man on earth, and that without obedience to that principle, no man can ever obtain the fullness of exaltation to celestial glory. So William Clayton, of course, saw it as essential, that plurality was an essential ordinance of the gospel. Now, I, I go to Fair Mormon all the time because I want to make sure that I'm balanced. I want to make sure that I'm representing a faithful LDS perspective as well. Um, and normally, like, I'll read it, and I think it's really good research, and I agree on But here's something that I, I have this main issue with Fair on this point. I found it really disingenuous the way that this was um, articulated. There's a question about, will plural marriage ever, you know, is it always supposed to be an eternal principle that's never to be taken off the earth? And they really downplay it. It's just like a few paragraphs on their, their website, and I'll link to that. But they, they give a quote of Heber C. Kimball, where Heber C. Kimball is saying it's a, you know, it's a principle that's supposed to be here forever and ever and ever. They point out that critics only use part of the quote, and uh, they give the full Heber C. Kimball quote in context. So I'm going to give it to you, and you guys can decide. Here's what Heber C. Kimball says. And he's delivering this in an address in 1855 in the Bowery, which, of course, was the makeshift tabernacle. Um, and sometimes this quote is misattributed to Brigham Young. This is the quote, quote, The principle of plurality of wives never will be done away, although some sisters have had revelations that when the time passes away and they go through the veil, every woman will have a husband to herself, end quote. Fair was saying, listen, this is why... This is why um, that, you know, it's not true that the, that the principle of plural marriage isn't an essential ordinance. Critics will only use the part that says that it will never be done away with. But they ignore the second part where some sisters have had a revelation. Now, this is an interesting part because very rarely, very rarely, if ever, do we have this second part included. I read you the other quotes of the prophets. Of course, there are many more where they say that, you know, they believe that this is eternal, it's essential, and it will never be taken away. But Heber C. Kimball has this one throwaway quote where he's saying some sisters have these revelations that they'll have one man in heaven. Now, I'm an LDS woman. I've had similar revelations when grappling with this this doctrine, this comfort coming over me that maybe I don't have to worry about it. I've talked to many faithful LDS women who say, yeah, I, I just know it'll be worked out in heaven. Um, I would not say that that is by any means considered 
an authority on the subject. It is not canonized. What is canonized is that there are penalties and you'll be destroyed if you don't accept it. This idea that we all of a sudden give women autonomy and um, power and authority behind their own personal revelations is comforting but certainly not canonized. And um, it's not enough. It's just, it's not enough. And I feel like that's a disingenuous response that we just need to, rather than say, oh, it's not, you know, the church leaders didn't believe that it was eternal. It's just how they spoke about it. No, that's not true. I think that the truth is they saw this as an eternal essential principle and things changed. And and that's that's how I would have rather seen this presented. Back to Bringhurst. He says, quote, at the same time that Utah Mormon leaders mandated the removal of an earlier LDS declaration entitled On Marriage from the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, remember, we talked about this. This is the Articles of Marriage. So at the same time, they are canonizing this, this revelation, the 1843 revelation in the DNC. They remove Section 101 that had been included in every edition of the Doctrine and Covenants since the initial publication in 1835. Now, remember, this is what it says, quote, Inasmuch as this Church of Christ has been reproached with the crime of fornication and polygamy, we declare that we believe that one man should have one wife and one woman but one husband, except the co- in the case of death, where either is at liberty to marry again, end quote. Okay, imagine sort of the brain gymnastics you have to do from 1835 to 1843, knowing about Joseph Smith's plural marriage, or perhaps your own plural marriage, having this article of marriage in the DNC. It stays in there till 1876. It's replaced with section 132 that becomes canonized. According to Fair Mormon, the reason that they didn't remove it, the articles of marriage in 1852, was basically just because they didn't reprint or republish anything until 1876. Fair also notes, quote, This statement was not a revelation given to Joseph Smith. It was written by Oliver Cowdery and introduced to a conference of the priesthood at Kirtland on 17th August, 1835. Cowdery also wrote a statement of belief on government that had been retained in the current edition of the DNC as Section 134. Both were sustained at the conference and included in the 1835 DNC, which was already at the press and ready to be published. Joseph Smith was preaching in Michigan at the time Oliver and W.W. Phelps introduced these two articles to the conference. It is not known if he approved of their addition to the DNC at the time, although he did retain them in the 1844 Nauvoo edition, which argues that he was not opposed to them. So they're saying that Joseph was not being deliberately mis- misleading. But I, I mean, I feel like, again, that's sort of a weak argument. If this were the only case where this happened, perhaps we could say that Joseph wasn't deliberately trying to play both sides. But of course, we have many, many instances where he says publicly one thing and privately another. And again, your interpretation is open to that. You can see Joseph as a protector of these sacred things and and remain faithful to that interpretation. That's fine. Or you could see Joseph as, you know, being deceitful or trying to hide things or going for personal gain, and that's fine. Either way, it is clear that Joseph did have this duplicitous doublespeak around it. There is some debate on whether Oliver Cowdery knew about the principle of plural marriage in the 1830s. We know that Oliver 
Cowdery would learn about the Fanny Alger situation, but his reaction at the time was pretty negative. So some say that this was in response to that as adultery, you know, and he saw Joseph as repentant. And others said that he knew about the principle of plural marriage and was doing this sort of sacred, not secret thing. This is where we see the interesting struggle of the church shaping and reshaping their doctrine. This idea of putting it in their scripture, taking it out of their scripture. What is scripture? What is revelation? What is not? If it's DNC 101 and it's in there and it's canonized and it's voted upon by common consent, is that revelation? Is that doctrine? Is that theology? Mormonism is really muddy about this. It still is today. And, and we have similar struggles with things like the proclamation on the family. You'll talk to some members who believe it's absolutely inspired heavenly doctrine. And then you'll talk to people who say it was written by a bunch of church lawyers as a response to a legal case, Proposition 8. And my opinion is kind of in the middle. I think Mormons filter everything they do through sort of divine authority, divine inspiration. So even if it is a bunch of lawyers, which, you know, the proclamation of the family was through lawyers developed out of this political struggle, perhaps they believed that it was some sort of impetus for revelation. But either way, it really shows how the church grapples with these things. The gospel, you know, in theory is said to be unchangeable and fixed, but Definitely the interpretation of that gospel is not. It's very, very fluid. Again, we see more significant change happening from outside forces creeping in with the church. When the church believes in polygamy and we feel free to practice it and emboldened to practice it, it's never going to be taken from the earth. It remains in scripture. And when things change, so do the scriptures. When the federal government steps in, we see these scriptures change again. In the 1890, in 1891, the revelation, the articles, the, in 1891, this revelation that had been in the Pearl of Great Price is completely removed. They just yank it out completely, but they keep it in section 132. But the wording changes, and this is important. The original heading reads, quote, revelation on the eternity of the marriage covenant, including plurality of wives. And it's changed to Revelation on the eternity of the marriage covenant as also the plurality of wives. So they changed including two to as also, which really reduces the word's meaning according to Newell Brinkhurst to, you know, instead of that thing that is essential to, oh, that thing that you can also have, maybe. I'm going to read Newell Brinkhurst again. And again, a plug for this book, Go Out and Buy Persistence of Polygamy. It's not just this essay, it's so many, so many great things. Bringer says, quote, And in time, additional text was added to the superscripts preceding section 132, dealing with various other issues collectively described as relating to the new and everlasting covenant. These included such doctrinal issues as power of the holy priesthood, as being operative beyond the grave, the importance of marriage being performed by proper authority to be valid beyond death, and essentials for the attainment of the status of godhood and the sin of adultery. Also added was a statement, plurality of wives accept acceptable only when commanded by the Lord. I'm going to read that again. Also added was the statement, plurality of wives acceptable only when commanded by the Lord. This was clearly designed to emphasize the fact that polygamy was no longer an authorized practice within the LDS Church. 
Despite efforts by the LDS church leaders to de-emphasize those parts of the revelation dealing with polygamy, the church found itself under attack by outsiders for the mere fact that the revelation continued to be included in the Doctrine and Covenants. Such criticism particularly evident in the early 20th century during the controversy over the seating of Mormon apostle Reed Smoot as a United States senator. Critics pointed out that Section 132 had been retained in the Doctrine and Covenants, whereas the 1890 Manifesto calling for the suspension of plural marriage was nowhere present. All such controversy led to the issuing of the Second Manifesto by then-LDS Church President Joseph F. Smith. In this 1904 document, Smith decried plural marriage, affirming that all such marriages were prohibited and threatening excommunication to any church official performing such marriages. And some four years later, the 1890 Manifesto was placed in the 1908 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. It was, however, not included as a revelation or section in the main part of the scriptural work, but instead placed as official declaration in the back. Also during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, efforts were made by various church spokesmen to de-emphasize the importance of polygamy, in particular the connection between plural marriage and celestial marriage, previously emphasized as a central tenet of Joseph Smith's 1843 revelation. Leading the way was premier church intellectual and future Mormon apostle James E. Talmadge. In his classic doctrinal work, The Articles of Faith, published in 1899, Talmadge defined celestial marriage as, quote, the system of holy matrimony involving covenants as to time and eternity, representing the order of marriage that exists in the celestial worlds. In referencing section 132, Talmadge skillfully avoids mentioning plural marriage, emphasizing instead the eternity of the marriage covenant. Actually, Talmadge had intended to include in the Articles of Faith a section entitled, Items on Polygamy, which, however, was omitted from the final version of the book as published. It is not clear if the decision to omit it was his, a church committee on publications, or that of the first presidency, notes Talmadge biographer James, James P. Harris. Two years later, Talmadge, in the Church Magazine article, further downplayed the importance of polygamy, dismissing it um, variously as, quote, not a vital tenet of the church, and an incident, never an essential. Talmadge concluded that plural marriage was practiced by a limited proportion of Latter-day Saints under the sanction of church ordinances, end quote. So Bringhurst really brings it down for us that James E. Talmadge, he's an English native who becomes a chemist and a geologist and a scholar who later goes on to be an apostle in the LDS hierarchy. He really begins this campaign to help the church de-emphasize plural marriage as an essential doctrine. He starts it with the Articles of Faith in 1899, and he really starts to redefine what celestial marriage looks like. He ties it to the priesthood, but not to plurality. He references DNC 132, but carefully avoids the word, you know, plural marriage, or and just focuses on the eternal parts of it. And of course, Talmadge gives us this language that it's not essential. And it was only practiced by a limited membership. And this is where they're really sort of rewriting the history. Or you know, perhaps from their perspective, that is, that is how they saw it. You have to understand their position with the federal government. They now become really converted to the fact that the church is no longer a polygamous church. 
Talmadge's work really opens the doors for others like Joseph Fielding Smith, who does the same thing in 1921 with his textbooks, Essentials in Church History. Beach Roberts does this in the Comprehensive History of the Church. He really rewrites the reasons for polygamy and and sort of the doctrine around it and says it was limited to a small group of people. If you really want to know what modern Mormonism looks like, or rather what the LDS Church believes today, or as my fundamentalist friends will say, what the corporate church believes, you can look no further than to the Latter-day Revelations published in 1930. Now, I had never heard about this before, but I want to thank my listener, Robert, who sent me an email about this, this 1930 book called Latter-day Revelations. You can get it on eBay for about $110. It's a small little book pamphlet where um, we see the church try to redefine the scripture again. They make an attempt of rewriting the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, There's a curious entry in the publications of James E. Talmadge in 1915, where they said that he tried to print this for the Desert Desert Book Company. But really, um, Latter-day Revelations is published in 1930. It was published in English and in many other languages. Basically, the idea is Heber J. Grant, who is now the president of the church in the 1930s, has this desire to condense the Doctrine and Covenants into a book where only sections that they think that are the most useful in, in the church should be printed. The rest they're going to get rid of. And so they published the Latter-day Revelation book. Just as an example, the first 20 sections of the book contain sections 1, 2, 4, 7, 13, 18, 19, and 20. All the other sections um, not mentioned were not included. The book, of course, leaves out section 132, the book is printed and uh, sales were very slim. The members were not impressed by this. James E. Talmadge wrote that the book's purpose was, quote, to make the strictly doctrinal parts of the Doctrine and Covenants of easy access and reduce its bulk, including the sections comprising scriptures of general and enduring value, end quote. This means, according to Talmadge, and Heber J. Grant, that 95 of the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants are left out, which by his reasoning are not essential, are not of enduring value to the church, and probably in his mind are not scriptural. This is in 1930, where the church is having this structure, this struggle already where in the 1920s, they just excommunicated some of their apostles, a bunch of their friends and their associates for practicing plural marriage, for still marrying in plurality. And now they, they try this, where they, they try to take it out of scripture. Fundamentalist Mormons not only aren't impressed, they are offended. And this is where they start accusing the church of changing scripture, which I feel like they have a fair, valid case. As a result, Heber J. Grant orders the withdrawal of the book from sale and tries to shred the remaining copies. And his um, reasoning was to avoid further conflict with fundamentalists. Now, Latter-day Revelation was translated into several languages and for many years was the only version of the DNC available in some countries. So as far as they knew, DNC 132 didn't exist for a long time. Uh, Here is what Newell Bringhart says in The Persistence of Polygamy about this. Generating even more controversy in discussing the Revelation was an officially sanctioned scriptural work entitled Latter-day Revelation, Selections from the Book of Doctrine and Covenants of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
Published in 1930 under the imprint of the LDS Church, the volume was actually compiled by James E. Talmadge, who by this time was a senior apostle in the Quorum of the Twelve. This work was characterized as containing sections and parts of sections from the Doctrine and Covenants, the sections comprising scriptures of general enduring value. Its purpose, in the words of Talmadge, was to, quote, make the strictly doctrinal parts of the Doctrine and Covenants of easy access and reduce its bulk. Accordingly, some 95 sections of the Doctrine and Covenants were completely omitted, along with parts of 21 others. The most noteworthy of these omissions was the entire section 132. Fundamentalist Mormons were outraged, accusing the LDS Church of changing the scriptures. And, of course, uh, you can read more about that in Persistence of Polygamy. I'm just going to read you the title page of what Latter-day Revelation says, quote, it's two pages long, and it says, among other things, quote, Many of the revelations given prior to the organization of the church during its early years related to immediate duties and callings of individuals. Others dealt especially with conditions in the church at particular times. A distinguishing feature of these communications from the Lord appears in their timeliness. They were granted to meet circumstances calling for divine direction of specific nature, except as illustrative instances of the Lord's way of directing directly communicating with his prophets, many of these revelations, once of present and pressing significance, became relatively of reduced importance with the passing of the conditions that brought them forth. This little book contains selected sections and parts of sections from the Doctrine and Covenants. The selections comprising scriptures of general and enduring value, given as the word of the Lord through the first elder and prophet in the present dispensation, which is verily the dispensation of the fullness of times. The complete doctrine and doctrine, doctrine and covenants is a current publication accessible to all so that the comparison between that volume and this is a simple undertaking. Now, I really think that this gives credibility to Carolyn Pearson's argument that the church could you know, abandon polygamy. I've always said, well, I don't think we can ever abandon polygamy, but this actually gives a lot of credence to Carolyn Pearson's, you know, argument. The church really gave its first attempt in 1930 to do this once and for all. It was probably too soon. Um, there were people still living who, um, had been neighbors and still were neighbors with, you know, I, my friend John Nielsen drove me down Salt Lake and he pointed out all the fundamentalist compounds downtown and, and they're really closely associated. They were neighbors with, um, apostles of the church. It was too soon to say, oh, this isn't scripture anymore. I mean, these kids had grown up together at church together. They were married to each other's family members. They, they knew that this was a disingenuous attempt but if the church could do it in 1930, there is a case to be made that they could do it again. I want to read to you what uh, Leroy Johnson says about this. Now, he, of course, goes on to lead the fundamentalist movement. He becomes one of the great prophets and leaders of the fundamentalist movement, specifically the FLDS church. This is what he says, quote, Satan has tried to destroy us ever since the gospel was given to the prophet Joseph Smith. He has used masterminds who have come into the church to try to take out these revelations, those things that they thought weren't of use to us now. They at one time took this book off the market, the Doctrine and Covenants. The Book of Mormon and the Pearl Great Price were left, but they tried to take out the Doctrine and Covenants, everything they thought was of no value to us now, and give us the book of commandments of more enduring value, they called it. 
It only lasted one edition. The church wouldn't accept it. The people wouldn't accept it. So they had to give us back that which they tried to take away, end quote. And these come from his sermons. I'm going to link to some scans of his sermons where he publishes about this in Truth Magazine. And you can tell not only is he irritated, but it's, it's quite a pointed critique at church leaders for doing this. Of course, you know, you can see his point. Fundamentalists who have now been excommunicated or are being excommunicated at this time for living this law that was never to be removed from the earth, but now is only sort of necessary, that thing that we once sometimes did. Imagine what that must have felt like to see this doctrine removed. You're fully converted to it and practicing it and sacrificing for it and on the run for it. You're still living the way that the prophets that you knew, you know, John Taylor and Wilford Woodruff would have asked you to do. Now you're seeing these disingenuous men, these men who you feel like are cowards, these men who you've been in their office and you've argued this with and you know that they believe it. You've been there having these conversations with them. You see them try to pull stuff like this, like taking it out of scripture. It, it must have felt like a terrible betrayal. And, of course, it strengthens your resolve to, to keep the truth alive, to keep Joseph Smith's gospel alive. Here we get the final manifesto in 1933, just three years after this book, you know, book is published. It's crafted by J. Raymond Clark, which um, is really directed at fundamentalist Mormons. And it shifts the rhetoric about the 1843 revelation, which is DNC 132, to being that only under certain conditions can plural marriage be a thing. Clark cites, quote, a few misguided members of the church who had secretly associated themselves together for the avowed purposes of perpetuating the practice of polygamy or plural marriage in defiance of the pledge made to this government, end quote. I mean, the irony there that they were secretly gathering together, that is how the practice started. They were secretly gathering themselves together under threat from the government. It wasn't legal then. It's not legal now. You can see the fundamentalist case. I keep saying this over and over and over again. And yet I can also see, you know, I don't see J. Reuben Clark as a villain. I don't see James E. Talmadge as a villain. I think that they really become converted to this idea that their job is to save the church, to keep it alive by abandoning this. And at this point, so many hurt feelings had been caused over this practice between private relationships, private apostles, private family members, that it really becomes this crystallized fight where each side cannot see this side of the other now. Clark also states in the final manifesto that uh, the authority to do so was illegal and against the church and said, quote, it was illegal and void because the Lord has laid down without qualification the principle that there's never but one on earth at a time on whom this power and the keys of this priesthood are conferred. The Lord has never changed this rule, end quote, which is blatantly false. I mean, we talked about this earlier in the second anointing podcast that I just did. Of course, others were given authority to seal. We have Wilford Woodruff when he was an apostle sealing people in, in the St. George Temple. We have apostles going down to Mexico, to Brigham Young's own son, performing these marriages. This idea that it can only be instituted by one person isn't true, and it gives the fundamentalists an argument. And yet, it's rewriting this history so the LDS Mormons have one way to go. Clark also disentangles celestial marriage from plural marriage, claiming that they are not synonymous terms. And of course, we take this and run with it. Bringhurst points out that in 2007, the LDS Church prints in their church manual— 
the teachings of the presence of the church this quote, quote, in 1843, the prophet Joseph Smith dictated a revelation that describes the eternal nature of marriage covenant, see DNC 132. The doctrines in this revelation had been known by the prophet since 1831. As commanded by God, he also taught the doctrine of plural marriage, end quote. So basically today's stance is that the LDS church, here is the doctrine of celestial marriage. Marriage is performed and sealed by the priesthood. That's celestial marriage. Also, there's that plural marriage thing. <laughs> DNC 132 should be called the law of marriage and also plural marriage. This is the history. This is the history of DNC 132. It's so contested that church leaders can't even agree on it. And now, you know, Brian Hales is criticized by saying that DNC 132 is not the plural marriage revelation. It's the celestial marriage revelation. He's not wrong. That is completely consistent with the LDS viewpoint. That is completely consistent with how James E. Talmadge envisioned the shift. J. Reuben Clark envisioned the shift. B.H. Roberts envisioned the shift. Joseph Fielding Smith helped shape the shift. They needed it to be this way to keep the church assets to survive. You can see why Mormon fundamentalists call us the corporate church, because in their view, only their corporate interests uh, shape this. I tend to think it's a lot more complicated than that. I think that it was corporate, but I also think it becomes cultural. I think these men become engaged in a battle with men that they grew up with, um, men that also believe that they were charged with keeping this principle alive. And here we have the modern Mormon story that, that our generations, my generations, um, are living with. You know, I go down to Colorado City and I hang out with Leroy Johnson's grandson and we're having the most fantastic, wonderful conversation about his grandfather, about, you know, my grandparents, about our shared history. And our generation is left to clean up this mess, this warring, this battle over this doctrine that started the day that Joseph Smith writes this revelation. And maybe even before it started, the battle was waging in Emma's heart. Joseph Smith, in many ways, was literally the victim of this revelation. Many, many, countless people would be the victims of this, for better or for worse. And it has this legacy that divides Mormons still today. Mormons that are practicing it in Centennial Park and in you know Colorado City and all over the United States and Canada and Mexico and, and England and, and Germany and all over the world where Mormon fundamentalism exists, are practicing the doctrine because of this revelation. They are shaping their families. They are shaping their hearts. They are shaping their worldviews on this. And the LDS church is doing it as well. They're doing it in response to this, as a reaction to this, as a distancing from this. And of course, we've engaged in this fight uh, against gay marriage now because we are this one man, one woman doctrine. Thanks to this revelation, we cannot underestimate the impact that this revelation had. Would it have changed if it was removed in 1930? Perhaps. I don't know what the modern LDS church would look like without it, but here we have it. It is so influential. I think it's one of the seminal parts of Mormonism. It's the thing that separates us from all other Christian denominations. And um, I really want to hear your feelings about it. So, 
leave your feelings on um, how this particular revelation has shaped your experience in the comments section of yourpolygamy.com. Go ahead and make a donation if you're finding this podcast useful to you. Pick up the books from these scholars. Their work is critical and essential. If you like this podcast and you support this podcast, you have to support the, the scholarship that sustains it. Um, Mormon Enigma and Sacred Loneliness. Uh, all of these books on polygamy, persistent subpolygamy. Thanks to uh, John Nelson who, who got me the sermons of Leroy Johnson as well. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.